Father, we praise you and we bless you that there is good news for us, that there is a gospel that goes far beyond our ability to receive it. So we ask today, not for a new gospel, but we ask that you would give us new ears and a new heart to receive the glory and the wonder of what you have done for us afresh and to live our lives in line with it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, last week, if you were here, uh, Greg Waybright, a fellow ISEer, preached for us out of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, about walls coming down in the church, about his own journey of transformation in the area of racial and ethnic reconciliation. And if you haven't listened to that yet, I highly encourage you to go back on the website to listen to it because it sets the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Because we're going to walk through that same passage for a second week, which is a little unusual here at IEC. And I'm doing that not because I need or want to correct anything Greg did last week, There's absolutely no need to. I simply want to build on it and to deepen it, to take us a step further into Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and draw out some implications for what God is calling us to here at IAC in this day at this time. Let's start by making sure we've got the big picture straight. At IAC, we talk a lot about the healing that the gospel brings, the good news brings. That, that healing begins in the healing of our relationship with God, right? That healing always comes first because that's the first and most important relationship that any of us have, right? Is our foundational relationship with God. If that's out of whack, everything else goes out of whack. But the healing of our relationship with God doesn't stop at our relationship with God. At the fall, the breaking of our relationship with God broke everything else, broke our relationships with with creation, with one another, with ourselves. So when Christ comes and the power of the Spirit, which is that gospel message to heal our relationship with the Father, he also begins healing all those other relationships too, all the other things that have fallen apart. And all throughout the New Testament, we see these relationships being healed in all kinds of ways, between men and women in general, between husbands and wives in particular, between rich and poor, etc. And we're going to have more sermons in this series in Ephesians that are going to address those aspects of healing. But in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, the focus is healing across ethnic barriers, specifically the healing that emerges across the wall, separating Jews and Gentiles. Now, as Greg said last week, it's it's hard to undersell how intensely cemented and how high the walls between Jew and Gentile felt in the New Testament era. And there were lots of reasons for that. Oppression, exclusion, uh, provocation. Uh, If you read the story of the Maccabees between the Testaments, you'll see some of the worst of it. But perhaps the primary reason for the walls was that originally God had set them up. These were God's walls in a sense. The Jews were the people of the promise, the people of the law, the people who had received God's fatherhood. The Jews were God's people and the Gentiles were not. They were the wicked, the unjust, the idol worshipers. Those, Those ethnic walls, I'm sure, felt infinitely tall because God had put them in place. 
But what's so easily forgotten is that the choosing of Jews was not a choosing over against the Gentile nations, but ultimately for the sake of the Gentile nations. Right? The purpose of God in electing a people was to bring the good news of who God was to all people. That had gotten obscured over the years, but the Father never lost the thread of the story. So with the crucifixion, Jesus took on the sins of the Gentiles and the sins of the Jews. Took on what had been done to the Gentiles and took on what had been done to the Jews. And at the foot of the cross, he put them on level ground. Listen to how Ephesians 2.14 says it. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. This was a massive transformation in the movement of salvation. This, this communal transformation into a church that was now both Jew and Gentile. Pretty much every book addresses it. It's what's behind Romans and Galatians. Like uh, Most of the disagreements about what exactly is the gospel come back down to how did Jew and Gentile fit together. It's a major source of controversy. And this still comes up in our context, in our times, right? This Jew-Gentile conversation. Anti-Semitism still exists, right? Sometimes under the guise of of terrible anti-gospel teachings. Also, there are still theologies that posit different paths to God for Jews and Gentiles, right? That the path for Gentiles runs through Jesus and the church, and the path for Jews runs through the Old Testament law and a renewed temple, which, I'm just going to be honest, doesn't make any sense scripturally, But even in more subtle ways, the ways Christians engage the Israeli-Palestinian conflict often suggests that one group should be treated differently than the other in God's salvation economy after the New Testament age. This Jew-Gentile debate isn't history, it's still with us. But when most of us read this passage, in our American context, what comes to mind isn't Jew or Gentile, it's divisions of race, race and ethnicity more generally. Now, those divisions exist in every society and nation of the world. America is not unique in this, but for Americans, what comes to mind are either racial divisions within America, white, black, brown, indigenous, etc., or national divisions between Americans and the rest of the world. In other words, what pops up, up in our minds in Ephesians 2 is often multinational or multi-ethnic conflicts. I want to state something that that may sound a little crazy based on our national history. For those of us in the church, all of these divisions, the multinational, the multi-ethnic divisions, should be way easier to overcome than the Jew-Gentile division. Because none of those divisions are God-ordained. In other words, there was never a point where God said that whites should have more cultural power or that America was God's chosen people. People may have claimed that over the centuries in overt or subtle ways, but it's actually fairly incredibly easy to dismiss that from the biblical story itself. A six-year-old can do it, literally. I was talking with my kids the other day on the way to school. Every semester we walk through, you know, Lord's Prayer or Ten Commandments or something like this. And and this semester we're walking through the Ten Commandments and we've gotten to the do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And I was saying how one way to misuse God's name is to speak lies about him. 
to say things about him that are not true. And I was giving examples. I gave all kinds of things, but uh, a couple of the examples where I said, what if I said, you know, God loves people with white skin more? Or that people from America he loves more? And one of my six-year-old twins just blurted out, well, that's not right. God made the whole world. Why would he love one part of it more than all the rest? I was like, you want to preach on Sunday? This is going to be a tough sermon. I I think you got this. Right? This should be way easier than the Jew-Gentile debate. But it definitely doesn't feel like it. I think there are a lot of reasons for this. I, I think one of the reasons is that in order to see healing, you have to understand the depths of the disease. To make peace, you have to understand the depths of the hostility. But often, and this is true in any nation, but often in dominant cultures, like Americans are in the world, or Caucasian white culture is in America, we don't always understand the depths of the hostility. In fact, we actually can actively shelter ourselves from the depths of the hostility because it's hard. We can do that by thinking individualistically, instead of acknowledging the reality of how our communities shape and form us, right? We've probably all heard somebody say or said ourselves, well, if there's, not a, if there's a, not a person of another race or nationality that I actively hate or actively hates me, then it's not my problem. We do it by thinking only about the present and ignoring the fact that we carry the past with us. Right? Well, that was all just history. We should be over it by now. If that was true, we wouldn't need counseling so much. Christians do this in particular by ignoring the breadth of the Bible's teaching on the effects of sin. Right? Scripture talks about an unholy trinity right? of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? The flesh is our individual sin nature, but the world refers to the systems and structures of society that draw us away from loving God and others. This is part of what sin has done. Another example, over and over again, the New Testament talks about the principalities and powers. Demonic forces utilizing human systems to enslave and intimidate and exclude and oppress. That's what it's talking about when it talks about the principalities and powers. In other words, communities and structures of community are fallen, not just individuals. The fall is not just a me issue, it's a we issue, an us issue. Now, it's outside the scope of this sermon to talk about how we might address these things in the societal realm through politics or something like that. But it is absolutely inside the scope of this sermon to talk about the implications for the church. Because what do we, as the church, know about the cross? At the cross, the world, the flesh, and the devil were conquered. At the cross, the principalities and powers were put to flight. Right at the cross, the sins our ancestors have done, that our communities have done, the sins that we as individuals have done, and anything and everything that has ever been done to us or our communities, they are all put to death in him. The cross is big enough for all of it. So whatever has divided us, whatever harms have been done, they do not define us anymore in Christ. And we are the people who are in Christ. Ephesians 2.15, his purpose 
was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Listen to that again. His purpose, in other words, part of the purpose of the cross was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The one body of Christ points to one new humanity in his name. To translate this to to our ethnic context, we could say that he is making one new humanity, not just out of the two, but out of the many. That out of the many nations, tribes, languages, and tongues, this new unlikely family emerges that that is going to persist into the new creation. This doesn't mean that there isn't Jew and Gentile anymore, that like uh, none of that matters, that there isn't American or Kenyan or white or black or Hispanic anymore, that we're colorblind. That's not what it means. It means that where we're from or who we're from isn't the fullness of who we are. Whose we are is who we are. The waters of baptism run thicker than blood. And we are one body, even in our distinctions and differences. Now at this point, there's another shortcut we can take that we have to be careful of, because this is incredibly good news about our identity. But there's there's another shortcut, especially if we're a part of a dominant culture. We can stop at this new identity and forget that identity is always meant to flow into transformation. Because true reconciliation based out of this new identity always comes at a cost. Right? Think about the reconciliation of our relationship with God. Right? The cross, yes, restores our relationship with God, but that is applied to us. We taste the fruit of it only as we recognize the ways we have been hostile to God, that we confess and repent, that we receive forgiveness, that we receive the power of the Spirit to change and start living in a new life. Take that reality and transfer it into this conversation. The cross also has power to restore our relationships to one another, but only as we recognize the ways that hostility was born and is still being nurtured. Only as we confess and repent of the ways that we have been content with that hostility uh, or minimized it. Only as we receive the forgiveness of those on the other side of that hostility. And only as we receive the power of the Holy Spirit to change the way we walk with one another. Friends, the church can and should be leading that charge and we have a gospel that gives us the tools necessary to do it. Now if you're sitting there thinking, man, that is, that is like a huge thing. It is a huge thing. It's a huge dream for what the church can be. But it actually still undersells what God's doing here. It actually under-promises what he's inviting us into. Because what fascinates me most, actually, about this passage is not what's being torn down. It's what's being built up out of the rubble of those walls. Now, you can imagine God setting up something that makes one new humanity where, like, everybody gets along, but, like, we retreat to our corner of the room because it's just easier. 
That is not what Paul is describing here. Let's listen again to verse 19. He's talking to the Gentiles specifically on this first part. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built, shift in metaphor, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Here's the sentence I want to focus in on. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Let's pull this apart. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That's verse 21. Okay, a couple things I want to point out. That verb, joined together, it's a unique word that Paul kind of made up. Paul stuck a word that meant together and with a word meaning joined. And he's like, joined isn't good enough. I've got to communicate interdependence. I've got to communicate reliance. I've got to communicate that one group has to be intimately knit together with the other group, joined together. I'm going to join these words together just like this needs to be joined together. So he's saying that there's an intimacy here to this, this joining, but, but, but why? To what end? Because God's building a temple. Now, the temple in the Old Testament was a literal building. It was, it was the dwelling place of God. It was the place where God's presence rested. And in the New Testament, that temple language gets applied first and foremost to Christ, right? He is the temple of God, but then is extended to the church, the people of God, as the body of Christ. The New Testament talks about that we are now the dwelling place of God, that we are now the home of the divine, which is really intense, But what makes a good temple? The same thing that makes a good home. A good home reflects the character and the life and the work of the people who live in it. Now, I've got four girls at home. A home with one bathroom would not be a good home for us, right? A good home reflects the work and the character and the life that's going on inside it. In the same way, a good temple reflects the God who dwells in it, reveals his character, points towards his purposes, such that when you're in it, you can tell something about the God who dwells there. Now, the church is not always a very good temple in that sense. But let's follow Paul's logic carefully here. If both Jew and Gentile are needed to join together right next to each other to form this temple. And if the temple is meant to reflect the very nature and purposes of God, then what he is saying is that Jew and Gentile cannot fully reflect God or his purposes on their own. In other words, to most fully reveal God, Paul is saying you need Jew and Gentile. If Paul were writing a letter to us, he might say you need black and brown, and white, and American, and Malaysian, and Dutch. Because you need gifts that the other brings. You need perspectives that the other sees. 
You see, it wasn't just that they could be joined together or that like they should be joined together because that would be like a good strategy for reaching the world. It was that they needed to be joined together for the sake of their own formation and for the sake of God's healing mission because nothing less would communicate the fullness of what God is doing here. We see little examples of this, like scattered throughout the New Testament. I want to point out just one, Luke 7, it was in our gospel reading, right? Centurion hears about Jesus, not part of God's people, calls on Jesus to come, heal his servant. Jesus is like, okay, I'm coming. He's like, no, I don't need you to come. I'm a man with authority. I know what it's like to just say something and people do it. If you just, if you just say it, and it'll, it'll happen. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, this guy gets it. He gets it better than anybody in Israel did. Why? Because he knew what it was like to be over authority. His social location gave him an insight into the very nature of who Jesus was that others did not have in the same way. And Jesus said, you guys need to talk to each other. Tons more examples. We'll just leave it there. But let me say this another way. God loves distributing his gifts unevenly. He loves scattering gifts in different people, but also in different peoples, different cultures, so that we might find him more fully only in one another. In order to see God's face as fully as possible, we need to see him in faces that look different from ours. In order to be the fullness of the body of Christ, we not only need different bodies in the room, but different experiences, different perspectives, different histories. See, what we've got to do is we've got to take all that language in the New Testament about having a diversity of gifts in the body of Christ, right, that we usually apply to like spiritual gift tests online, right? Those things about how we need each other, those passages about how each part is no more important than any other. And we also need to apply that across these national and ethnic boundaries in the people of God. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's his vision of the church. And friends, at IAC, I do think we have a head start on seeing this. Part of it is the number of people in our midst who have have been in international contexts and who have seen the fruit of this play out. A big part of it is through our friends in Rwanda, right? They planted us here in the U.S. We are an Anglican, we are a church plant of the Anglican church in Rwanda. And I say at pretty much every welcome dinner that our Rwandan brothers and sisters have blind spots, but they're different blind spots than our blind spots. And as we look at Christ together, we see him more clearly. Here in the U.S., we have so much money and power and technology and influence and autonomy that we're tempted to put our hope in those things. But when you spend a week with our Rwandan brothers and sisters, you realize that there are many ways in which we are more poor than them. The overwhelming generosity, their, their, their all-encompassing welcome. Right, right now in the U.S., we are, we are busy excluding others based just on the fear that they might do something to us if they had the chance. Our politics is built on that kind of like possibility fear. Our Rwandan brothers and sisters killed one another. And yet they have been on a 25-year journey of forgiving and reconciling and rebuilding their nation. Right, friends, we've got gifts, but we're starting from behind in some of this stuff. And we need to be joined together with our Rwandan brothers and sisters more deeply to become a fuller temple together. 
I'm so thankful for the technology and the airplanes and the bank wires that allow that relationship to happen. But I'm also struck today that verse 21 is not the end of the passage. Right? The last verse we read was verse 21. That's talking about the broad, global picture of the church. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. But then he takes it one step further, and I think this step is so key for us today. Verse 22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Those sentences are like the same, except for two little words, you too. Who is the you too? You too is the church just in Ephesus. That outpost of the kingdom, that local assembly also needs to be built together. And yes, once again, that's a word Paul just like smashes two words together. Like it can be built, but it's got to be built together. In the local fellowship even, there is an invitation, a responsibility, a need to be built together to practice this same kind of reconciliation, to to walk together to build a temple from the rubble of the walls. Our ability to receive all God's gifts and to reflect those gifts to the world depends on that. In other words, to, to, to take this maybe really home for us, being international Anglican church across an ocean is an incredible gift, but it is not the fullness. Being international Anglican church across the oceans and in this city is the fullness. But man, is that hard. We've started on this in so much of our mission and so many of your lives. Like we do reach out across these barriers, but this kind of reconciliation doesn't happen accidentally. Even many of the churches that are really doing well at this work struggle to do it all the way down. For example, you can be uh, culturally different but be a political monoculture. Right? You can make space for, for white, black, brown bodies but not their perspectives. You can welcome people from other countries until the war breaks out. None of this is easy. But I want to tell you about something that's been happening here at IAC in our church council. You may not be aware of church council. You may not know who's on church council. But church council is a team of lay leaders here at IAC. In other words, it's nobody on staff. Um, I'm a part of that team, but, but nobody else on staff is a part of that team. And it's their job to steward the vision and the values of our church. And one of the things that we've been asking over the course of this year in particular is we talk about healing in our heartbeat statement. What kinds of healing, God, are are you wanting to bring among us here at IAC? And they've been discerning on that through the whole first half of this year. What do we want the Spirit to do among us? How do we want to pursue obedience to that call? And over the course of the first six, seven months of this year, there was a sense of it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us about a particular area of healing. Now, I want to give you a sneak peek of a document that that has been written um, 
It was finished in July. We're going to be working with it. It's going to be coming out in fullness probably around the first of next year around our annual meeting. But when this passage came up in Ephesians, I thought, okay, this is, this is time to, to, to release just a little bit of it. So for now, I quote, Over the next five to ten years, IAC desires to become a church that receives the blessing of the many nations and multiple ethnicities within our city. This would be reflected both in our relationships and partnerships across the city, and also, we pray, within our own congregation. This focus would not replace other ministries we already do or simply be a separate ministry that only a few engage in. Instead, it would become part of our church's DNA, pervading everything we do and affecting every ministry of the church. Through this focus, we see the possibilities for how healing could come both to members of non-majority cultures and to the dominant white culture of our city and our church. We need one another to see the fullness of the gospel and to receive the fullness of healing that Jesus desires to give to his church. End quote. Now, In saying that, I have no strategic initiatives or concrete plans to give you today. (laughs) Other than the things that we're already pressing into and doing. I actually think that's okay because this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long obedience in the same direction and we can only guess at the first tiny steps of that obedience. At this point, it's a dream, but it's a commitment. And in that commitment, there is no awareness that these barriers are more deeply ingrained than we yet know. There is a confession that we have been content to let that separation remain. There is a repentance that we are no longer content with that. There is a forgiveness that we know sits underneath all of this that comes from knowing that we all sit at the foot of the cross and there is a confidence that in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ will give us what we need. We have that confidence because we know this is not just our dream and commitment. This is his dream and his commitment. This is not our idea or some like social movement that came up in the last couple of years. This is his idea. This is his plan to reveal himself more fully to us. This is his gift and only he can give it. So let's be bold and let's ask for it. Father, we come to you today as a body, as a church, as those who have been here a long time and those who are just sitting in today and like, what just happened? We come to you in need because we know that we do not see you as fully as we could. There is always a fullness to you that lies beyond our grasp that you delight to invite us into. So I pray that today you would begin a new work, that you would continue the work that you have already begun, that you would draw us into a greater fullness of your people and of yourself. If there's anything in the way of that in our own hearts this morning, we pray, Father, that you would be working in those spaces. 
And we pray that you would open us. Open us to the fullness of yourself. Because we trust that in that openness, you will speak. And that you will give us grace to hear. Amen.